Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Tonight we've got Carl pressing the buttons for us, and I'm Vanessa, so thanks for joining us. Have you ever wished that there was a way to banish climate denial misinformation from your internet experience? Well, there may well be. Tonight we'll speak to a team who's behind a potential solution in that space, so stay tuned for that. Plus, we'll be discovering a new secure messaging platform to liberate you from the social media industrial complex. So lots of handy tips for um, a very local-focused kind of audience this evening. Before we get into that, a bit of news Clearview AI's client list has been exposed in a data breach. Now, hopefully many of our listeners will have heard of Clearview AI. They're a maker of facial recognition software. They're an American company, but they do have an Australian founder. And the Australian Federal Police, as well as state police forces in Victoria, South Australia and Queensland are all clients. How do we know this? Well, last Wednesday, Clearview AI suffered a data breach. CNET reported, and I quote, The data stolen included its entire list of customers and the number of searches those customers have made and how many accounts each customer had set up. So a representative, a legal representative for the company has stated that um, unfortunately data breaches are part of life in the 21st century and they've clarified that their servers weren't accessed, that this, um, this breach came through a flaw which has since been patched. So a flaw through people who had uh, legitimate access and that got exposed by people who didn't have legitimate access. So some of the things that you should know about Clearview AI are that photo scraping and facial recognition capabilities um, that they are using have been flagged as privacy concerns by a lot of privacy advocates. Um, In 2011, Google's then chairperson said that this exact type of high-quality facial recognition is the one technology that the company had held back on because it could be used in a very bad way. So Clearview AI's database includes 3 billion photos that it collected from the internet, including websites like YouTube, Facebook, Venmo and LinkedIn. What's significant about that collection is that you have to be a member on those sites to be able to um, see all the content. So that sort of web scraping is in breach of the conditions of those companies. And heavy hitters like Google, Facebook, Microsoft have sent um, cease and desist letters to Clearview for this sort of behaviour. Um, so it's just something to keep a watching brief on and um, privacy advocates out there are definitely concerned that the security of a company who's holding so much personal information is just not tight enough. So that's, um, yeah, something to watch. In other news, a little bit of argy-bargy between social media platforms. Reddit CEO has called TikTok fundamentally parasitic. What was the context of this? Well, it was a Silicon Valley insider one-day conference hosted by a couple of VC firms, and it was called Social 2030. So the Reddit CEO and co-founder, Steve Huffman, was part of a panel discussion, and they were covering whether other social networks could learn from the innovations in TikTok's products. Huffman pushed back. He said, I look at that app as so fundamentally parasitic It's always listening. The fingerprinting technology they use is truly terrifying and I could not bring myself to install an app like that on my phone. And then he later added, I actively tell people don't install that spyware on your phone. 
So it's just so interesting in um, an area like Silicon Valley where people are drinking the Kool-Aid, uh, they take social media platforms for granted, they think that uh, massively having social media integrated into your life and storytelling is a huge thing. For someone to be so strong against another one of those platforms is actually very counter to the culture that you usually usually um, see from there. That Usually they, they play along the party line like this is all fine, this is fine until it hits their kids. So a little bit of sensationalism there. Finally in news, we want to say that Airbnb has said you've got to fight for your right to party now. Their rules have always banned party houses, but enforcement has had huge practical challenges. There have been bad stories about trashed properties, um, sites being used as sets for adult films, and after a deadly shooting in one Airbnb property last year, they've tried to crack down on risky behaviour. So people who are booking an Airbnb to stay in now face stronger penalties for policy violations. And since last week, hosts can contact a rapid response team. They can be notified of high-risk reservations, but there have been very few details on how they might automatically detect those. And the third part of their strategy is giving hosts access to discounts on surveillance products. What does this mean? Um, Airbnb haven't got their own surveillance products, but they've done deals with three top-rated third-party products. Uh, These products are around uh, the $200 and less US um, mark, and all three are able to monitor noise, which Airbnb sees as a leading indicator of property misuse. Um, One of them also monitors temperature, motion and humidity, uh, which probably wouldn't have too much to do with some of those parties, but who knows. Now, Airbnb have been assuring consumers that none of these devices record sounds. They merely measure them. So they're measuring like volume and activity. But they've come under a lot of criticism about the increased surveillance being encouraged by the platform. Hosts have had scandals of their own. It's not just Airbnb users. Hosts have been in trouble for um, installing surveillance in their properties without notifying um, people staying in them. So there's sort of problems on both sides of this. The Deputy Director of Digital Rights Organisation Fight for the Future told Vice that a measurement-only device is certainly better than internet connected surveillance cameras or listening devices in your home. However... He said, we're hurtling towards a world where almost everything we own is monitoring us in some way, and I'm not sure that's actually going to be a safer world. So very surveillance-heavy news theme this evening. Hopefully we'll lighten it up a bit for you as we go through the show tonight. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're with Carl and Vanessa this evening. Have you ever succumbed to some clickbait-filled misinformation about climate change? Have you accidentally ended up in a climate denier denier, um, corner of the web? Well, Nevena Sporovska and Raf Schutten are part of a team who collaborated on a possible solution, the Climate Block extension for the Chrome browser. They're here to tell us more about it tonight. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. It's amazing to have you here. Often the developers of extensions seem like, you know, faceless folks out there, and it's really great to see when one crops up. Uh, So this particular extension has come about from a few people. Could you tell us a bit about where the idea originated? 
Certainly. So it came out of the Climate Five movement, which is five simple steps for climate action. And it was spurred on by the bushfires. So we were really concerned at the start of the year that people weren't having direct action that they could be a part of. And part of that conversation then turned into, well, every day I'm online for most of my time, as I'm sure many people in this room are today. And how how am I using that space? Where is my money going to? Like you said, am I inadvertently filling the pockets of people that I rather wouldn't when I go to carsales.com.au or other websites like that? So from there, we came together as a collective and developed this idea for a very simple and accessible piece of climate technology. Raf? Yeah, so Climate Block is a it's a Chrome and Firefox app, basically. Um, but we kind of see it as a it's like a service to let you know when you're browsing websites that are owned by um, climate denying media. There may be the actual media that denies climate or other things that they own, like carsales.com and things mm. like that. Um, largely, this is um, News Corp media, especially in Australia, but around the world, they're the main outlet of climate denying media. It's like there was a conversation piece that was saying it was maybe 50% of their media is climate denying when they talk about the climate. Gosh, that's um, so they were our kind huge. Of, yeah, yeah, huge. So they're our prime target first. But there's a few other smaller ones like Press Holdings in the UK who are known for climate denial. Um, yeah, so it's it's a very simple plugin. It has a list of sites to block, and it basically lets you know when you're about to browse them. If you still need to read them, it also lets you read them. So it's not we're, we're trying to so it's an awareness piece. Yeah. So how did you identify who was responsible for climate denying information out there? Had someone already done that research for you? Yeah, luckily, because um, a lot of work getting these lists together. Like, that's really the main main work here, and we didn't even do that. Like, there was another um, a blocking plugin that already existed um, called By Rupert that had a few websites, but there was a much bigger list that um, – who was it? Um, Emily Apocalypse is her Twitter handle um, – had put this Mur- Murdoch blocker list together. And so we kind of combined these two lists and added a few more things. So, the- so something that people talk about a lot these days is Australian super funds who might invest in, in technologies that aren't green or might be actually pushing climate denial information as well. Are there any thoughts on maybe expanding the blocker into those sort of spaces? Absolutely. And that's part of the five steps of Climate Five. So the number one step, because we need to recognise that we're on stolen land and that colonisation is one of the direct, uh, having an impact on our environment. So we direct people to pay the rent. But the second one, and I think it's an incredible fact for anyone who has their money in super, which is the majority of people in this country over the age of 18, is that switching your super is the number one, number one thing you can do to stop the investment and growth in coal and other polluting industries. So in doing that, we've been raising a lot of awareness about that, that there are currently only two green super funds. And so we would love to be able to extend not only the information, but technology. So that information is more front and centre for people. I love that when you talk about using this extension, it's flagging and giving people an awareness that this might not be a trusted source on this particular topic. But you also mentioned the idea of us filling the pockets of people who push climate denial information. I don't think that that relationship is completely clear to all of our audience. So could you um, explain a little bit about what the implications are when we visit sites that publish climate denial content? 
Certainly. Every day when we go online, we make choices, both conscious and unconscious. So this can be scrolling through our Facebook and we see an interesting article. This can be people who work uh, perhaps in a media landscape or have to digest a lot of information on the daily. You may not be aware of it, but the websites that you can become accustomed to using every single day uh, create click revenue that goes to companies like News Corp and others who are climate deniers. And so what this does so perfectly and what I haven't seen anywhere else in climate tech is brings that awareness to the forefront. When you download this uh, on your browser, it says this website is blocked. Visiting this website creates revenue for climate change deniers. Can we really afford that? And I think that awareness really grounds us in meaningful clicks. And as we mentioned, it does allow you in its accessibility to go through it if you need to, recognising that sometimes, unfortunately, you got to go there. And other times you can just go to somewhere else to get your news. I'm really fascinated by this solution to the problem because supply chain transformation and transparency has been a massive issue for the last few years and people are getting very aware of where um, they're getting products from. But I think that they don't necessarily think about the news they consume as a product in the same way and think about the climate impact of virtual products, you know, intangible products. Was that something that you, you know, thought about like supply chain transparency as, as you were looking into this problem? Yeah, definitely. That's kind of the, one of the driving things behind this. And when we were, we were talking about things for the Climate 5, it was like one of my ideas for the Climate 5 was we, we should do something about Murdoch Media, but it's just too hard for individuals to track what are the Murdoch Media sites. People don't have that information and they don't have the time to do that research. So really before we could push people to do that, it's like we actually need to make a platform, something simple that curates all of that for people to make it easy. So it's just a reminder of what you're doing when you go on. You don't have to do the research yourself. So let's get more into the depth of how this extension works. Um, can it intercede in something like a direct search? Is that something that you've thought about in your product roadmap? Um, basically, this the, the plugin just intercepts the URL that you're going to. Got so it, it just does a, does a match on the URL and any subdomains of that URL, which is pretty simple. Um, it does need – the one thing, it, it needs quite a strong permission to be allowed to do that, which is mm -hmm. a little off-putting for people. But we don't use that for anything except checking where you're actually going. Sure. Uh, have you? Did you think about using any sorts of um, machine learning types of technologies? I'm not – I have never built an extension, so I don't actually know what sort of capability, uh, what sort of complexity simple. you could build in it. Yeah, I it took me two this days might be to the write case. the JavaScript. Yeah, and, and so does that limit you, in, like constrain you in terms of the sort of complexity of, um, of options that you can handle? Um, I think for what it needs to do, there's not really much needed. Like yeah. it's actually more limited by the data and getting more lists of sites that need to be blocked. Like that's more work than writing the tech, to mm. be honest. Like it's I, I see you've really um, focused on the publisher side of the problem and that is a huge problem. When you were researching a solution in this space, did you do anything that looked at the um, proliferation of, you know, how social media can amplify climate denial messages and and have any thoughts about you know solutions there or is it just actually really too hard it's it's pretty hard to get into facebook or something and block things sure i guess you could write a, a blocker that 
like was like ad block that block things in yeah, the page, but yeah. it's quite hard to follow. You need to be constantly It's more like some mute instructions, isn't it? Yeah. This is just, it's really a low hanging fruit. Mm. Um, and this is our like minimum viable product. Basically. Love it. Like the simplest thing we could do that achieved a lot. Do you have anything on your roadmap that you might be able to flag? Um, we're going to see how it goes people using this the first few months and we'll do another uh, release in a month or two without anything that needs changing. Um, So who do you think your target audience is for this product? Parents, grandparents, uh, anyone who works in an office, uh, people who are using computers and those who also have mobile phones. Nevena, I wonder, did you think about those stories that we hear, particularly out of the States, of people going home for family events like Thanksgiving and detuning televisions from being able to access channels like Fox? Absolutely. And I think where I draw my inspiration whenever I'm feeling slightly down about situations like this is the little town in England called Liverpool um, (laughs) that in 1978 had a catastrophic event that led to the death of several a dozen members of their community and then how it was framed in the Murdoch paper was that the people there were responsible for these people's deaths when in actual fact it was an era of police marshalling and what happened after that is the community came together not only to mourn these people but to vow that they did not want this in their community. They started getting the papers and burning them, removing them from the cafes. If you were carrying it on the side of the street, you were a scab. You were not part. You were rejected wholeheartedly. And so through that, this has become the single biggest piece of consumer action in the world. Since the 70s, it's carried through. You cannot buy the sun there. To this day, taxis have do not buy the sun on them. So it's something that's carried through. This is where we've drawn the inspiration from and very much uh, when I go to my parents' house and we've been encouraging uh, others to do the same, to put this on their computer and at the same time maybe just hide the Foxtel remote. I mean, this is community civil action. I love that. Look, anything that helps us read content online a little bit more critically and having a notice pop up, the contextual one that, that sort of says, hey, this is not a trusted source, this is problematic – I can see how that could be very constructive. Have you thought about the opposite side? Are there any trusted sources that you thought you might want to, you know, boost or give some verification to? For example, you mentioned the article and the conversation talking about research into where this climate denial media um, content is proliferating. Yeah, so that that article actually mentioned a lot of the papers that do a lot better, like The Guardian and even Fairfax is a lot better than News Corp. Um, so we were thinking about maybe we could have a recommend, like click this instead. But really it's like that's a lot more work than just getting out a simple... MVP oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Raph. <laughs> um, it is a possibility, but often I find that the climate block comes up when I've already clicked a couple of links. Like mm. I'll open a couple of news tabs and it's just one of them is blocked. So I read the other two. So normally that kind of just works organically anyway. You just read whichever ones the blocker doesn't come up on. It, it really doesn't come up that much. It's like one in ten kind of, yeah. So how did you go about testing this extension? Uh, that was mostly Katie's team who <laughs> did most of the testing. So I don't know who these <laughs> the testers were, but they were great. We got like, did did any like, interesting feedback come out of that that process? Um, yeah, initially the um, the phone app really didn't work at all. So that was um, some good feedback. Oh, that's impressive! Yeah, it works on yeah. phone as well. Yeah, you alluded to that before, Nevena. Yeah. 
Only Firefox, unfortunately. Chrome doesn't have apps on the phone. Yeah. But um, Firefox, it works. There you go. That's a powerful um, thing to install for family and friends. All right. Well, to check out the extension we've been discussing, you can go to your Chrome browser, chrome.google.com, go to the web store and search for Climate Block by Guck. That's like duck but with a G. And you should look for that. How would you get you it on Firefox? You can Google it as well. You, you can just Google Chrome. I try not to say people could Google it. They can duck, duck, go. Oh, they <laughs> so can duck, duck, very, go. It will come up on that it's too. It's very complex to say you can yeah. duck, duck, go, guck. Yeah, duck, duck, go. <laughs> duck, you can duck, just duck, duck, go, climate block, Firefox, and it will be at the top. That's love it, to love it. Um, we've been chatting to Nevena and Raf, and we want to shout out to Katie for helping us line up this chat tonight. Thanks for your time. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us, and happy browsing. Amazing, I love it. Safe um, climate denial, except uh, not accepting a sort of browsing, I guess. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. With Carl and Vanessa this evening, Josh Jessup-Smith is one of those crazy guys who always rocks up to the sort of interesting tech-based conversations that you want to be having in Melbourne. He's part of Loki Foundation and they're very interested in blockchain, encryption, um, secure technologies and all sorts of interesting things which uh, help us maintain our privacy in this increasingly web-scraped kind of world. So tonight he's here to chat to us about Session, which is an end-to-end encrypted messenger that removes sensitive metadata collection. And it's designed for people who want privacy and freedom from any forms of surveillance. Josh, I think that means me. I hope it means a lot of our audience. Tell us about Session. Uh, Thanks so so much for having me, guys. Um, Session is a homegrown Melbourne project and um, it's a private messaging app. And so we started this about two or so years ago. And um, essentially what we did is, you guys know the Signal Messenger, I'm sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of the most popular private messaging apps. Um, so what we did was we forked the Signal Messenger and we've basically uh, used, utilized the power of open source. And we've made a bunch of beneficial changes, which we thought... Um, would be really cool. It was something that we thought was like missing from current privacy messengers and we thought we would just sort of uh, try and add those things. Like one one thing, for instance, is um, the trusted centralized server. Mm -hmm. We've decided to get rid of that, do away with that and replace it with a decentralized network. And one of the other most notable changes, I think, is like removing uh, the need to tie your real world identity to your account. That's hugely significant. Mm. It sounds like you could go really into detail here and I do want to get there. But before we do that, I think for some of our audience, what you talked about with forking and alluding to open source you know, software and what have you is probably um, a bit more than some of them know about. Let's first talk about mm. where, where um, the message services um, sort of competition is at the moment. So for a lot of our listeners... Um, they'll be aware of WhatsApp yeah, WhatsApp, and uh, Facebook Messenger, Signal, yeah. 
And they very well might be using in-app messaging services. Like there's lots of kids uh, sharing Instagram accounts to to use that to message each other these days. Yeah, that sort of thing. So let's talk about what are the what are the problems with some of the popular messaging services out there. What are the risks? Um, well, one of the really most notable risks is I don't know if you guys have seen this recently, but it's the kind of the scandal with uh, China censoring messages on the WeChat app. Um, so what, what's happened was they were searching for keywords related to coronavirus and censoring that out of messages. And so this is the kind of thing that can happen if you've got a centralized control of your, your network or if you have to trust companies to do the right thing by you because I think as time has proven uh, – companies don't always have your best interest at heart. Yeah, people have gone to great lengths to try and get around those sort of filtering systems as well. There was a great example on sexual health information in China and people were having to fill their video with 30 minutes of innocuous-looking content to try and get past the filters yeah, yeah. and then slip in some, some solid sexual health data. Yeah, really yeah. incredible ways of, of dealing with this. But So you say if we have um, better messaging services, we, we won't have to deal with this sort of problem. Yeah, So uh, and, and this is the thing with a lot of private messages. There, there's no such thing as perfect privacy. You can kind of try and, try and attain perfection. That's always what you're trying to do. But it's always this cat and mouse game where someone will come up with a solution that works really well and then people who want to break that will find a way to break it and you continually kind of create this chase situation mm. where you try and outdo the other person. So a lot of these private messaging apps do certain things very well but then they falter in other areas. So that's kind of why we created Session was we saw a need um, – to fill a gap that current private messengers sort of have. Yeah. And that's that's kind of why we did it. And I think this will just continue to happen. And yeah. open source technology is a really good way of doing that because you kind of make it open for everyone to make changes to these things. So, so I feel like it gives us the power to uh, – I guess it gives us the power to win the fight or at least push yeah. that chase forward. And it means that those who are in the know can always look at the code, the source code, and say, right, we understand what's happening here. There's nothing uh, problematic built yeah. into the code yeah. here. Well, that, that was one of the biggest things. I know recently, uh, last year, we had the assistant access bill happen around this time. And that was actually a major hit, I think, for tech and innovation here in Australia. And it's a question that we still get to this day was, you know, well, how can you trust this Australian project when they're trying to put back doors into everything that you do? Um, but this is one of those things that open source really mitigates because if there are any back doors to be placed, anyone can see it. You can look in and see there's some funny business going on. Yeah. And so that's in complete uh, the opposite end of the spectrum to products like uh, WhatsApp, which uh, is, is now a, has been acquired by Facebook some years ago. Yeah, yeah, completely closed source because it adds that level of trust again where you kind of have to just trust that – Everything, it works how they say it works on the box. So let's jump in now um, to when you started working on your product. How did you identify the desirable qualities of a messaging service? I think it's, um, if you've used Signal, Signal's a great, a great app and I, I really like Signal. But it's just 
the the little aspects like when I fire up Signal and I need to put in my mobile phone number to create an account. And that I think is majorly problematic because I think something that people don't realize is how much their mobile number ties back to them. I mean, like in the last 10 years, like I think about how many times you've actually moved house, like changed addresses or changed your email address. Maybe it isn't that much at all, but I guarantee you've changed your phone number way less. Like my phone In fact, been with we've me changed so far less than the government was expecting us to change. They'd, they'd reserved mm. all these phone numbers for us and they're saying we're just not moving on to them. They're going to last us five years longer than we thought they would because people find it so convenient to keep the same number. Yeah. Oh, you've nailed it there. Yeah. So yeah. You've, you've taken an iterative approach. You just went, what, what isn't quite right about Signal? What could we add value on? Yeah. And it's, and it's that because also I think if you, if you need to tie your real world identity to your account when you're trying to use a private messenger, it kind of is so antithetical to wanting to use a private messenger in the first place. So are you only thinking about Aussies as your audience here or is this, you know, you mentioned China as an example where they yeah. could do with solutions. Is this available in China? Yeah, so th this has always been a, a global kind of project. And I think the, the thing is here in Australia, we take privacy for granted a lot of the time. The the people who really need privacy the most are in these un underprivileged countries or these countries where there are just harsh surveillance and harsh restrictions placed on them. So, yeah, China is definitely one of those places. I know Iran's one of those places where they've had the internet shut down. They've had Telegram completely banned from them. Um, so at the moment, at the moment, I mean, this is available in China purely based on the fact that China hasn't blocked this thing yet. Um, but also there are ways we've been looking into ways where you can completely circumvent, um, a shutdown of this completely. Like even if there was an internet shutdown, you'd still be able to utilize things. Like there's another open source. Mesh uh, networking sort of yeah, technologies. Yeah, Briar, yeah. Briar. So you could use a mesh network. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of our audience would be interested in mesh networks purely because they're such music lovers by and large. Yeah. And they tend to go to a lot of festivals and it used to be that it would be very hard, say, Golden Plains is on this weekend. It would be very hard to get access to, uh, you know, mobile reception in that area, particularly if you weren't on uh, the major, the major telecommunications network beginning with T. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, and if you use something like mesh networking, Josh, tell us how that would work in an environment like a music festival. So essentially, it uses Bluetooth. So what what would happen in a music festival instead of using uh, your current internet connection? It would basically connect to each other through Bluetooth. Um, and so that would really help. That would help in a music festival situation. It would also help in a protest situation. And it's, it's a mesh because it's not one-to-one. -one. It's like one-to-many yes. until the message can find a way to get to the intended delivery. Yes, exactly. Uh, and recipient. the, and the, the other thing that's kind of cool is like you can extrapolate that out and kind of build on top of that. Like for instance, I, I know Tesla has the Starlink at the moment and potentially you could do you could do things like using that their their goal one of their goals is to provide internet to people so maybe you could use that to extend the reach of the mesh network possibly like just as technology keeps advancing there's so many cool new ways that you can try and stay private online so this seems like an altruistic project are you charging anything for people to access this messenger no it's completely free because that and that that's the the main 
point of the project is because the people who need privacy the most are the people who don't necessarily have the most money. And uh, privacy is a fundamental human right. So everyone should be able to have it no matter where they are. So how do teams like yours manage to resource um, products like this? So this, this is also one of the unique aspects of our product as well is that the whole app sort of works on this underlying blockchain network. Um, and that's kind of where uh, uh, funding comes from and that's where the ec- economics of this thing lies and that's how we're able to give this experience to people completely for free. Cause this so is your the- day-to-day work kind of funds your social impact side gig? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's the cool thing about blockchain projects in general is like not only are they cool experiments in terms of new tech projects, but they also couple with this um, economic model that you can test out as well. So it's just interesting to see all the cool projects that come out of this kind of industry. So when I first started reading about Session, the, the Session Secure Messenger, I saw that you said it uses a, an onion routing network technique similar to Tor, which is, you know, the Onion router, which I hope a lot of our audience know about. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. What was your approach there? Okay, so Onion routing is this technique where essentially just say you want to get to Google or you want to go on the internet. You could go straight there, but if someone was watching where you were going – they would immediately go, okay, yeah, I see Vanessa went straight to Google. So what onion routing does is it puts a whole bunch of people in between. So just say if I wanted to go to Google, instead of going straight there, I would connect to your computer, Vanessa, which would then connect to Carl's computer, which would then connect to another computer, which then eventually goes to Google at the end. And whoever's watching doesn't actually know the original person who wanted to get to Google at the end of the day. They just see that someone has connected to Google. And onion routing kind of works in this way that um, in that whole chain, in all these hops is what they're called, every single hop, um, no one actually knows the full destination of where the request came from and where it's going at the end. All that's known is the next destination. So all that's known from my end is I'm going to you and then all that's known is you open up this, this little request and you go like, oh, I need to send it to Carl. And it, that just keeps unwrapping like an onion. There's these layers of encryption that keep unfolding like an onion. Beautiful. So what would you like to tell our audience about Session? Should they get involved? Oh, 100% they should get involved. I mean, the, the, the cool thing about open source projects is that anyone can get involved. And that's where the power really lies, is that everyone and anyone can get involved. Um, and it's not relying on, on having to have a product from a trusted institution. It's open source. Yes. You know, it means anyone can audit it. It's, yeah. uh, and it's built off Signal. Yeah, yeah. It's, built, it's based off the Signal protocol. So I would say the, the one thing that could help us out the most at this point in time is because it's still, still very early days. Like we've only just released it. It hasn't been out for a month. So I guess if, if you guys are interested in using a private messenger is download the app. It's on um, all the – it's on iOS. It's on Android. It's on desktop. So it's on all your Play stores. Um, download the app. Try it out and give us your feedback because we're still building this thing and we're trying to make it – as good as it can be. So I've got to get stage. my mum on it because I cannot have WhatsApp knowing everything about the coronavirus avoidance mm. tips that my mother is sending me. I mean, you know, that could 
that should really look like it's coming from anywhere instead oh, yeah. of just from my mother. The the first person I got it on it was my mum. Yeah. Yeah. And that was <laughs> They great. are fantastic test subjects. Oh, they they really are. Mine's a bit too advanced though. Yeah. Yeah, being a data scientist. Oh, mine mine is mine is interesting. The first message I got from her was like, Great, now we can talk without the government spying. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, thanks, Mum. Yeah, I was like Well on board. Cheers, Mum. Where do people go to get session? So, like I said, you can go to your native app store, but um, if you want to find out more, you can go to getsession.org and you can uh, look into it. If you're that way inclined, you can look at our white paper. You can just find out more information about it. Um, And if you want to find out more about what us at the Loki Foundation do, because we do a lot more privacy projects than just session, um, you can check it out at loki.foundation. Amazing. Always great value, Josh. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. All right, 7.48 on... Triple R. Well, and Vanessa, this evening, uh, we've had a real focus on privacy and security on the show this evening, and we thought we'd take a bit of a deeper dive into an article that's been published on the Melbourne University site, Pursuit, where they put up a lot of their thought leadership and research sort of materials. So Dr. Vanessa Teague, who's been a, a previous guest on the show and is late of University of Melbourne, now resigned, and her colleagues, Dr. Chris Colnane and Dr. Ben Rubenstein, um, all from Uni Melbourne, have published the simple process of re-identifying patients in public health records. And what it is, is a bit of research on uh, an incident that happened late 2016, where doctors' identities were decrypted in an open data set of Australian medical billing records. Um, Now, patients' records that were within that data set have also been re-identified. Uh, and they suggest that it's something that should be a bigger news story than it is. And I would recommend that people go to Pursuit and look up this article um, by Vanessa Teague and colleagues. So in what happened in August 2016 was the uh, Federal Department of Health had published records from about 2.9 million Australians. Um, and these were billing records. Now, they came from the Medicare Benefits Scheme and the Pharmaceutical Benefits Schemes. And they contained a billion lines of historical health data from the records of about 10% of our population. Now, they were longitudinal records and they were de-identified, which would be what you'd expect before they put something up on an open data website as part of its regular policy. Now, a lot of data um, scientists and data analytics professionals had a look at these data sets um, just because they wanted to, you know, use them to augment other research that they were doing. However, they, they discovered that the way that pay, that um, the records had been de-identified were not, um, were not good enough, frankly, and that people could be re-identified in those records. So there's, there's a lot of um, detail that we could go into about good practices around managing that sort of information, um, but the experts do know that it should be should be done better. So it's just a bit of a, a gap in, I guess, the the perceived, well, the understood collective wisdom on how to de-identify data and then the actual practice that was happening here. And so there's been a bit of a gap. So the health data was um, published to contribute to research and community information, policy development and policy evaluation. And because of that, it was really extensive. It went from 1984 to 2014. So, you know, a 30-year lot of information about 10% of the Australian population is a really significant 
breach. And you'd have to think that people who have a lot of medical data, you know, that's highly private. So this particular report is the second phase of this team from Melbourne University's analysis of the sample data set. Um, when they first sampled it, they found that the encryption of supplier IDs was easily reversed. They informed the department and the data set was taken offline. So the first thing they did was risk minimisation. Um, and their motive was try to inform government policy with a demonstration of how easy this was to do. But there's a real risky balance between data sharing and privacy, and there's a whole lot of alternative solutions that could be considered. And they recommend things like differential privacy for published data and secure controlled access for researchers for sensitive data, rather than just going straight to an open data portal. They then go into a lot of detail about how to re-identify patients, and it's well worth a read. Um, so that's a little nod to some of the amazing research coming out of the University of Melbourne at the moment. A big thank you to our guests this evening, Nevena Sprofska. Oh, sorry, I'm saying your name wrong, Nevena. I haven't got it right in front of me at the moment. Nevena and Raf, and also Josh Jessup. Sorry, Josh Jessup Smith. I really need the DSA filter this evening. So, Josh, I hope you'll uh, accept my poor pronunciation there. Massive thank you to our podcaster, as usual, Yazan Saif, and Talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been bite into it this evening. It's been Carl and Vanessa. The team will be back next Wednesday evening. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.